Hey guys. sensations of that I recognize as nervousness a little warmth and speech feels a little halted and the breath feels short I was sitting in my room for a little while and well, I started with I was trying to collect my thoughts around what I would say tonight and I noticed that as I was thinking there was just a kind of forcefulness about wanting to say something useful and thinking and kind of reading a little bit and reflecting and writing down stuff and I just like knew that it just wasn't the right way to prepare for talking about practice, for sharing Dharma. It's not that it's the wrong way to prepare, but it seemed like it was really pretty clear that just sitting would be better than that. It's like, I don't know what could prepare us for life any better than practice. Honestly, and it can just, it really moves me, this um, gratitude I feel for having found this path and for my teachers who have shared their practice with me. It's such a responsibility and an honor to share practice with each other. So so I'll, I'll make a deal with you. <laughs> Since we're here practicing together, I promise to watch my mind as I'm talking and do my best to get out of the way and let the practice speak through me and you agree to watch your mind while you're listening and notice all that you can about how you're receiving the words the attitude of mind as it changes deal? alright <laughs> do this together My hope is that, my only hope really is that there's something that I say that keeps you inspired to keep practicing the way that I've been inspired to keep practicing. I really was just sharing with Steve and Alexis and Vance as we're getting to know each other a little bit. We haven't ever taught together. So just kind of sharing with each other about our practice and I've really, I've done almost all of my practice in Minneapolis with teachers, you know, my teacher who teaches at the, my primary teacher, Mark Nunberg, and Steve, Kamala, practicing with for a decade. 
I feel like um, I've gotten my needs met just with a strong intention to practice, knowing that you know, I don't have a whole lot of ambitions around doing a particular thing in a particular way. I just have this like clear sense that practice is the way to go, just to keep practicing, you know, finding some way to care, just to keep caring, keep doing it, no matter what's happening, no matter the conditions. And this is really what we've been practicing here with this open style of awareness and developing continuity in our practice, no matter what we're doing, whether we're sitting on the cushion in a formal way or brushing our teeth or walking to the dining hall, transitioning from one thing to another. It all matters. So my, so I'm going to try to um, probably reiterate some of the teachings that we've been referring to over the past few days that we've been together um, and weave that in with some of the comments that you've made and your groups and in the Q&A, some of the themes that, have, that we've heard from you uh, throughout this retreat so far and some um, practical support and maybe a little, some stories of my life and how I've worked with some of the challenges of practice really staying focused on um, how we connect, how we learn to be with our experience the way that it is. We might call this intimacy. Or it seems to me that intimacy is really another way to say finding a way to care. And sometimes that's like even just asking that question, like how can I find a way to care in this moment really helps me connect with what's happening, especially if it's something unpleasant. So we can even call the attention that we call our attention an intimate attention. And this intimate attention is something that's not conceptual, it's beyond, maybe beyond is not the right word, but it's, um, it's a direct experience, knowing the unfolding, watching, understanding what's unfolding right in front of us. So what does it mean to be intimate in our lives, to be connected, to find ways to care in our lives? You guys have really been sincere practitioners. It's been touching as we've together reflected on, the teachers reflected on how it feels to be with you. It just feels like you're in the soup, so to speak, watching your minds and trying to find your way through 
and really waking up to the truth of suffering. It's the first noble truth. And you've been noticing the truth of suffering in your minds, in your bodies, and in the world. You've asked questions, you've posted questions about all of these things. And sometimes the truth of suffering can be overwhelming. And you've seen that too. When the mind feels saturated and it can't, it has a hard time seeing the bigger moment, that there are more experiences to be known than the fixation in the mind, fixation on hip pain or knee pain or loneliness or grief. Or these big questions like, how, how do we do relationships? Yeah. And we've also been waking up to the truth of change or impermanence. I saw this so clearly as I was retreating before this retreat for few weeks here at Cloud Mountain, Um, uh, pretty early on I developed a cough, like an intense cough, it was was, uh, impactful to everyone, (laughs) (laughs) and I didn't know, I didn't have any symptoms of cold or like I didn't have fever or anything like that. It was just this kind of dry cough every probably two to six breaths with the occasional coughing attack in there, you know, woken in from time to time. And it just lasted and it got progressive. And and there was just like nothing I could do, right? It was just this, the body doing its thing. It was There was so much learning there just to be with that I couldn't, it was hard to sleep. I would sleep for like three or four hours and then just be wide awake, coughing. And so I was just practicing as much as I could with the cough, sitting, walking, sipping tea, you know, soothing, sucking on cough drop practice, and <laughs> whatever it was. But there was so much to learn about how the body is really. You know, I can do everything I think of to take care of the body, and it still is not mine. It's still um, functioning off of the causes and conditions that have, are playing out that are, you know, unknown to me. And there's really no other way to be with all of that than to surrender. Like, there wasn't anything I could do to make it stop. There just wasn't. So it was just a question of like, well, what can I learn? How much can I learn? And I saw so much in my mind about wanting things to be, you know, expecting, expecting mind, expecting the retreat to be a particular way, wanting the body to cooperate with my plan. Um, And this frustration and just being with the Frustration and really seeing below the frustration to the uncertainty, the fragility of life. 
noticing how tender and precious this life is and how it's hard to know, impossible to predict what will happen in any moment. And I started to, that started to lead to, you know, other questions about just knowing the body that's aging in every moment, no matter how young we are, the body is always aging. What is there, what kind of ground is there to stand on then? If there's no body to really rely on and even when I take care of it in a good way, feed it good food, get some exercise, get enough rest, meditate a lot, you know, do all the right things. Body still has a mind of its own. <laughs> well, that what does that mean for the rest of my life, for my home, my family, people? Every everything changes. Every person will age and eventually pass away, and relationships. At some point we'll cease, at least because of you know, our own death. So what kind of ground is there to stand on? What, what can I take refuge in? And just, this is a big, kind of a big understanding that develops over time, but just, you know, in these small ways and with our lives, the way that it unfolds, like with a simple cough, it can sort of bring up these questions and a little bit of, like, our heart kind of lands in a little way and understands the truth of impermanence in it just a little bit, right? gets closer and closer with practice. It just gets closer. And not pleasant, you know, it's not pleasant. There's a lot of fear. And the body responds to that fear in ways like, a little bit of trembling and but what was left, you know, after what was left was just gratitude, really gratitude for this practice and this life and uh, gratitude for this, the heart's ability, the mind's ability to actually connect and see things, to see the truth of impermanence and uncertainty and the earnest, you know, hope to predict. So easy and natural for us to want to predict what's going to happen next, to find some safety. These are, this is human nature. Right? And there's nothing wrong with that. And there's still this kind of deeper truth to understand too. Yeah, and what it doesn't mean is that, I mean, it, we, it doesn't make sense to, like one strategy might be to keep a safe distance from people, to not really get close or to not connect, right? Because then there's loss and there's fear. But that's the thing that makes the least sense. What seems to make the most sense is to have 
full and meaningful lives to do the things that need to be done, that we want to do, to have the relationships that we want, to find, to go to grad school or pursue our dreams, make art, have relationships. I said that already. Have relationships. <laughs> Friends, partners, children, animals, the earth. There's really nothing we can't be in relationship with. So the answer is to do all of that and with as much find as much meaning as possible and really honor and appreciate to the most best of our ability. And still like keep coming back to this like where where can we find refuge? On the first night we I talked a little bit about the refuges and precepts and every day we chant them. But to really reflect on what this means to take refuge. Take refuge in knowing the way things are and beautiful community people who reflect the qualities of mind the beauty in our minds that we can aspire to that we can hope our you know hope the transformation results in some of that for ourselves I saw some of this in our, our group today. The small group I I led was so beautiful, such a, a sweet uh, connection that people had. If you were there, you know what I'm talking about. There's so much tenderness and sincere sharing and connection. And just ended with us all sitting in silence together and holding space for each other to be honest and do the work that we need to do. It felt like a real product of the work that we've been doing together over the past few days. And there was an element of vulnerability that was there. That's so much a part of caring, how we connect, our ability to connect in any moment. I mean, you've probably seen this too. I definitely saw this like with the cough you know, the vulnerability of this heart that really wants some predictability, tenderness around that, and you've probably seen this in your own minds as you look at insecurity or doubt, like how vulnerable it feels to actually open to those experiences, how vulnerable it feels to open to the uncertainty of the body, whatever kind of pain. You've all had body pain, right? <laughs> yeah. part of the, it's part of the gig. We're also waking up to
the impersonal nature of things that causes and conditions give rise to experience and it's not an, an I that's making anything happen and it doesn't make sense to claim to claim it either to think that I'm the one who is I'm a doubtful person or I'm a whatever <laughs> flawed person I'm a insensitive person or I'm a unmotivated you've heard that a person who doesn't care doesn't make sense these experiences arise in the mind these defilements arise in the mind and we see them as so easy to kind of get absorbed or indulge in our thoughts that it's like this mass that's feels so solid and it's like I am this I am losing it I am not going to make it I am this is too hard because I am so heavy right now with this but we get to practice with finding some space around that you know just asking that question can be useful I have done that many times just like can I how can I care about this and saying something like it feels so much me even really saying that pokes a hole in the identification and seeing if we can find some space around that in which to hold it a little more gently and A lot of what we see, a lot of the defilements of mind we see because we're paying attention to thinking, the thinking mind. You've, many of you have talked about this, about no, wanting to know how to work with thoughts, what to do with thoughts, how to keep practicing even though there's so many thoughts. It feels like there's nothing more happening than thinking. And this getting connected is really <clears throat> beyond, you know, I would say that, say that again, but I don't think that's a good word, beyond. <laughs> it's not conceptual, it's experiential, it's embodied. Alexis used that word many times, it's embodied. You might have noticed walking and actually instead of being with the steps or the body in motion, thinking about being with the body in motion, have you noticed that? Yeah. Or eating some food and like, oh, this tastes so good, instead of actually being with the flavors of the food, right? You're nodding, yeah. Or looking forward to something. Has anybody looked forward to the bell ringing? Or looked forward to lunch? Or it doesn't really take much on a retreat looking forward to a shower? <laughs> yeah. That looking forward to something is also, you know, knowing thoughts, thoughts in the mind just proliferating. And is a layer that 
Yeah. Sort of prevents us from really connecting directly with the experience that we're having. And thinking, man, like we really talk about socially addictions of all kinds, but we hardly talk about our addiction to thinking. This thinking's happening all the time. And so much of it we don't notice. And it's not bad that, you know, the mind just thinks that's what it does. We can actually be grateful for thoughts because they point to they point to something more. They're actually more of a symptom than anything. They're often a symptom of a limiting belief underneath or a feeling or a deeper insecurity or something like that. And so once we start to notice thoughts and patterns of thinking, then we can notice what's beneath them also. Yeah. And practice gets deeper. And it's not that we have to try to look for that. It's simple, you know. It's like the same practice no matter what we're looking at. It's just being with the moment-to-moment knowing of something. It's just this. It's always, ever, just this. Right? And as our continuity gets, mindfulness gets stronger and continuity is more steady, then uh, wisdom just develops on its own. We hear the Dharma, we practice, stay in community and listen to each other, and wisdom just slowly develops on its own. Some teachers will say, will remind us that this is the marathon, and you're on the path, it's the marathon, not the sprint version. Right? Things happen slowly, develop slowly, but they do. And more and more over time, more and more, it gets illuminated in the mind, about the mind. Thoughts point to our attitude of mind, also. How we're relating to experience. You might have seen these things. You might have seen the how you're relating. Hopefully, many times over. You might be relating with this experience of whatever it is. You might actually be boredom don't really know it because we're not really getting the attitude of mind. You might be relating to this experience of neutral, knowing neutral by seeking excitement, looking for looking forward to something, right? You might be just sitting here and things are kind of still and steady and noticing objects and sights and sounds or Yeah, things are really charged at all. They're not pleasant. They're not unpleasant. They're just kind of like this, neutral. And then your mind might go off and start thinking about that apple that you're going to have in an hour or a cup of tea (laughs) or whatever. It doesn't have to be super exciting. It could just be, you know, the next thing that you're going to do.
It's important that when working with thoughts, we really stay in the awareness of them and not get lost in the content. Getting lost in the content is what we mean when we say indulging in thoughts or following the story. The content is important. Often the content of our thoughts is important. And we'll be, there's plenty of time to reflect on that content when we're practicing, when we're meditating and practicing mindfulness. Just noticing the thought itself is enough. And in working with thoughts, we can also notice even if we get lost in thought, which has probably happened, yeah? Happened a few times? Getting lost in thoughts, yeah. And you wake up and realize you're still here. You're lost in thought, and that's not even, it's not a game changer either. You can, it's okay to keep practicing with that too. We can notice the residue of the thought, of being lost in thought, and the effect it has on the mind. You can notice, like sometimes I notice like when lost in a particular flavor of thought that's, there's a lot of striving or pursuing energy in this mind, and probably yours too, and a lot of people here in the United States are goal-driven, have a lot of ambitions. But I can notice the um, when I get swept away by some pattern of thought, this the, and it, it ends, and there's mindfulness again, there's like a little bit of throbbing in the head. It's like force, it feels like force, like I have to, I have to think this, I have to do it. It's unpleasant. And you might have noticed obsessive thoughts too. Yeah. And those have that same kind of flavor for me of that forcefulness. And then the reoccurring nature, and also I've noticed that this is a little bit of uh, wanting, you know? Like the obsessive thought has is a quality of wanting there. I only notice that because there's, you know, you notice wanting or craving or clinging, greed, some version of that. Um, It's easy to notice in um, simple ways, you know, start by noticing when you're going through the food line, wanting a lot of this, or, ooh, watermelon, right? I'll have some of that today, a little bit of wanting that watermelon. So getting used to what that is like, how it feels, the texture, um, how it feels in the mind and the body, and then start noticing it in as many other places as possible. And so just noticing that in obsessive thoughts, there's a little bit of wanting to think that thought, not wanting to let it go. It can show up too in thoughts that are about home, you know, or family, or memories that are so nice to think about. Like I remember that time when I went camping with my goddaughter, and she was so cute. And, and then like, oh, there's a noticing that lost in thought, and like, oh, I kind of want to think about that a little bit longer. <laughs> And it's not just sitting on the cushion and 
watching thoughts. It's also doing, you know, our activities, like I mentioned, with eating. And also for me, um, exercise has been a big one. Running. I've been uh, running off and on for many years and on retreat. I often run. And I've been just learning over the years how to, how to run on retreat, how to run in general, how to exercise in general, noticing how much um, pursuing there is in the activity of running, like the thoughts that start to creep in, even um, with an intention, like set an intention to run at a pace that is natural and the mind can be relaxed and not do more than that, set a short time, so not running for an hour or anything like that, just a short time to get the energy to move through the body and get a little exercise to support the mind and and then still even then with all those good intentions start going a little bit and it's oh let's go down to that corner. Right? Or I can think I can I feel pretty good. I think I could run a little bit harder today. Like the mind that just really wants to keep pushing, pushing, pushing. Yeah, and how that's that just shows up in so many places. Yeah. Control and rigidity. And so how to work with that. Just have a real commitment to do my best to not act out of greed, anger, delusion, when that's operating in the mind. So anytime I can see it, just take care to not not do something in that moment. And it's like in these activities of like running and eating, simple daily activities, eating, for example, like noticing that when there's wanting in the mind that I don't, I'm not going to take that bite. What I do is like notice wanting in the mind, put the spoon down, take a deep breath, and then do it again, right? So I'm not taking all day to eat a meal, but I'm just noticing, like, every time that, that there is noticing of wanting a flavor of greed in the mind, that I really care about this mind and this heart and this life to not, not react to it. Just like when I notice there's a pursuing energy in the mind to run a little bit farther, I'm just not going to act on it. It's not like there's nothing wrong with running or getting some exercise, but knowing really clearly that Every, every time that I feed that greed or that wanting, that energy, it just makes it stronger and caring enough to not do that. You know, one of the things I forgot to mention is that <clears throat> when talking about working with, working with thoughts, One, one strategy or one way to practice is to let the thought go, notice the thought and let it go, and then feel the feeling underneath, see if there is one. Yeah. And I noticed this on one of the retreats I did just before this, 
there's this, you know, those signs in the meal line that uh, when people donate the meal, it says something about that. You've seen them already. There was a sign that said, uh, dedicated to the 400,000 children living in foster care in the United States. And it was so, I just read that and really, the first, the, right when I read that, I, you know, the reading, knowing that the mind is thinking as it was reading, like, as soon as that left, the feeling underneath was gratitude. And it sort of surprised me that it was gratitude, you know, for reading something that was hard to read. But what I learned is that gratitude for the the person who donated the meal is like I really felt grateful that they cared enough about my my heart, you know, cared enough to help me open to the truth of that suffering in the world. Like I felt so grateful for that. Yeah. But there was that not only did they donate the meal but donated the meal for that reason. One of the things that has come up many times in your questions has been how to work with suffering in the world, how to be a responsible citizen, how to social responsibility, personal responsibility. And the practice is really the same, the strategies are just different in the world as we engage with all of the suffering that we see climate change and so much injustice and oppression and people living in poverty and food insecurity it's just like it goes on and on right political challenges really our our goal is the same to find ways to care no matter what we're doing, whether it be running or eating or engaging in the world. I love this quote by Mother Teresa, and she, you probably, some of you might have heard it, it's something like, when you have no peace, or when we have no peace, it's, beca- it's because we forget that we belong to each other. I love that. This reminds me of how this, my liberation, my freedom, my complete freedom, this heart's complete freedom is really connected to yours too. That caring is about is about knowing that. And we can see that how our actions impact each other in such small ways here on retreat. Our thoughts, our, our the things that we share and the way that we hold space for each other the way that we, you know, refrain from using our cell phones in public places and how we are really careful when people are walking in and out of doors or giving each other space to do our practice. Sometimes they're having a hard time and we're yielding to that, right? We might see somebody crying and we just let them cry and go through it. And still even in our silence and our 
presence or speaks volumes about how we're taking care of each other and really understanding that this connection is important, that my freedom is your freedom. I have been really pretty involved in social activism for many years in my life and recently with participating in a variety of ways with Black Lives Matter and using my practice to show up in action in a good way and seeing how, you know, that commitment that I talked about not being really committed committed to not taking any action that is rooted in greed, hatred, or delusion. How tricky that gets when, in like at a protest, there's a lot of energy flying around. But that's been a really important commitment to make. So I just get, I really see how the world does not need uh, any more reactivity. It causes so much harm. And so although there aren't any direct answers, this practice is experiential and we get to, you know, test things out and see what works. We also have wise leaders to follow their example and we can watch each other and see what seems to make sense, what seems to be the next right move. And we can test it out for ourselves. We can take action. We can say something, do something, and see if that leads to peace, see if that leads to freedom, see if the heart feels open and vulnerable and connected and intimate, or if it doesn't, if it feels tight and constricted. And then we know, like, oh, sweetie, it didn't feel good. Let's not do that again. Or that felt right. And when we, when something feels right, it feels right. And we know it feels right. And we only know that because we've been watching our minds. Yeah. So this practice that we're doing here, watching our minds in simple ways, you know, with the breath and the body and the very simple life, it really is essential in being able to show up in the world in any meaningful way with less reactivity, more responsiveness, less anger, more compassion. It is po- it is actually possible. I've seen this in my own heart, like being right in the middle of a protest and feeling such compassion for all the suffering in the world, at the event, and being kind of surprised that that's there instead of anger. And also seeing how it really feels like survival, like a matter of, it's like an essential part of this path that I'm walking, but also my, you know, my life, that this connection I have to my partner and my friends and others in the world, people I know, people I don't know, that my willingness to wake up to my own reactivity is, you know, is essential. It means everything. It means being able to be close and connected without causing harm. 
and even you know there's just no there's no way to never cause harm like you can walk down the path with as much care as possible and possibly step on an ant right this is the best we can do is have good intentions to follow models leaders we can see to, to more than anything just to watch our minds and see what leads to peace and freedom and what doesn't but I didn't know what I was going to say tonight <laughs> so I brought things to read that I thought I might read and who knew if I was going to actually read them but it seems fitting to read this this is a book called um, The Heart of the Revolution by Noah Levine and it's actually from the foreword in the book by Jack Kornfield and I'll just read it. have you read it? no? wherever you are your heart can be free Nelson Mandela showed this when he walked with amazing dignity and compassion out of 27 years of prison to become president of South Africa. You too can free your heart. You need not be trapped by your past. Individually and collectively, our hearts can be released from the sufferings of our history. I have seen this over and over again on retreats as meditators honorably face the pain of their history with courage, healing compassion, and forgiveness, and learn to move on. I have seen this in prisons and hospices and AA meetings, and among former victims and former combatants for peace in countries around the world. The sufferings of our families and community and the world are built on lies, lies of fear and addiction, of racism, of trauma and hate. But they are not the end of the story. There is also a release from these lies, when my teacher Maha Gosananda, whose whole family was killed in the Cambodian genocide, gave teachings to 25,000 traumatized survivors in the refugee camp, I wondered what he could say to those who had lost so much. He took his seat with dignity and chanted the Buddha's words over and over. Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. Soon, all 25,000 refugees were chanting with him, faces covered in tears, giving voice to a truth even greater than their sorrows. Forgiveness, compassion, and freedom to live your own life are available to you. They are your birthright. As Noah explains in these pages, there is no one who is unable to love. Mahagosananda, that's what I mean by a leader whose example is worth following. Hmm. It feels right to just leave it there. Let's sit together for a minute and let the words sink into our hearts, as Steve says. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.